Well, good morning, everybody. Today we are in Luke chapter 23. We're going to be starting at verse 13. But as we think about that, I actually want to direct your attention to a different location of the Bible for just a moment because there is a deep part of me that when I read this particular chapter in Luke, my brain flashes instantly to the other end of a thread and where that thread begins. Because I believe Luke 23 begins in a different location in the Bible. It begins in our origin story. It begins in the genesis of all things. Literally, the first couple of chapters, the first three chapters, in fact, of your entire Bible. And so, if we flash back for just a moment, and we look at that section, we see that there is this creation, there is this garden, there is this pair of individuals who bear the image of God, and then we see the one whose image they bear is with them. And so, what you find in that space is freedom and unity and oneness and blessing and peace and all the ideals that we can envision in that space. It was harmony. It was cohesion. It was beauty of the highest order. But that is until we get to chapter 3. And we read in the story something that's sort of unique. It's actually the very first meal ever recorded in the Bible. Which is strange. I mean, I'm sure they, they ate before this particular time. But it's in chapter 3 we find the scene that unfolds. And this first meal is not a communion meal. If anything, you could almost call it a disunion meal. It's not the table of fellowship, but it's a table that creates disfellowship. It's where a deceiver slithers into the environment and sows doubt and discord into the garden of God and starts to convince the, the pair of individuals that the way things are going is not in their best interest and they should reconsider the contract that God has made with them. And so we pick up the scene in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6. The women, or the woman rather, she, she interacts with this deceiver and she's convinced. She looks at the tree, the tree that God said, don't eat of that tree. Do not enter knowledge out of due season. It is not for you to take. It's only for me to give. Well, she looks at that beautiful tree. She sees the fruit is delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband that was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly... They felt shame at their nakedness. Now, there's all sorts of richness that is in there that we could unearth, but the simplest idea is with that moment of rebellion and sin and self-will, as their eyes are open, their souls are closed, and the world changes. It becomes a world of division, decay, discord, and death becomes the new way of life, not only for this pair of individuals, but for all who would come after them. And it would take a very creative act on the part of the Creator to undo the damage that occurs that day in the garden. A very um, unsuspecting, sacrificial, scandalous action of self-sacrifice in love, in grace, for the good of the race. That's what would have to happen. But it's not going to happen on that day, but rather on another day in the distant future where he changes everything for our good. That 
is where we're going to find ourselves today in the Gospel of Luke. And so, uh, as you know, we have an app, and if you would like to follow along in the notes of our app, there's a lot of notes today. I'm going to warn you, at some point, I'm going to put on a bow tie and a tweed jacket and become a seminary professor, just FYI. But there's going to be a reason for it, and so while we're going to do some homework, I think there's going to be some things in here that definitely inspire us and helps us connect dots that maybe have been tough to connect up to this point. And so uh, you can follow along in the notes if you want, or get our app on any app stores. You just put in Redemption Church Duval, it'll pop right up. You can download it, follow along, that'd be great. But what I want to do this morning, as we get underway, is I want to just create some space for you to silently pray get your heart ready for today and we're going to jump right into luke chapter 24 after i pray let's go ahead and just take a moment together the depths of what this message is all about, what your good news or gospel is all about, I, I think what makes it probably so scandalous and radical is that you are a God of all power, all knowledge. You could, you could do it any number of ways, and you choose humility, you choose servanthood, you choose death at the hands of your creatures to rescue the very creatures that wanted your demise. I thank you for so rich a grace. I pray that we will be a people and a community of that kind of grace, that we will embody what you did in our own lives every single day, and we will continue to be learners of what it is you want us to teach, that we would realize we've never arrived. We, we are always learning. We are growing in wisdom. We are growing in what it means to look like you and think like you and enter into our world every day uh, representing you. So help us to do that on this day. Help us to see the beauty and the mystery of what it is you've accomplished for us. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, and we need you in your good name. Amen. So, Luke chapter 24. Last week, we left off uh, Luke functioning as the investigative journalist that he is, and he was stoking the coals of various ideas. Most simply, he was stoking the coals where you have different kinds of people. You have some people who believe, you have some people who doubt, and you have some people who wonder. And that's been the scene, right? So as we kind of left off last week, what we knew for sure is that women have come to where Jesus' body should be in a tomb, but it's missing. And two messengers are there, and they've stated that he is risen— and from that, the women go and tell all the other fellas what's going on. But at this juncture in the story, what we have not seen is Jesus. We've seen the after effects. We've seen sort of the, the, the crime scene, if you will, of the bodies gone. But we have not been introduced by way of Luke into the final portrait of there he is. Our eyes are on him. He's standing there breathing, living, eating, hanging out with everybody else. We have not seen that particular picture yet until today as it unfolds before us. And if you're taking notes this morning, it starts with the first thing in your notes— the iconic descendants of Eden's fall. It begins with that same picture. And so miles away, the women are believing, the men are doubting, Peter's wondering, but miles from there, we come across this pair of individuals, right? Two people that we don't know much about. 
It says, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, this pair of individuals, one, we categorically do not know for sure who they are, and the other, we barely know, all right? And, and, and so, we want to try to understand, like, well, what's going on here, right? Who, who are these people, and why is this so unique or special to Luke that he decides to put this story in to the overall gospel presentation? Well, one of them we know for sure is a man, and his name is Cleopas. We see that in just a little while here. Right? And so we're given a name, a name that we really just don't run across Except maybe one other time in the gospel accounts And then the other person, we have no idea whatsoever We don't know if it's a man, we don't know if it's a woman We don't have any verifiable proof Now, uh, some of the older commentators on the gospel of Luke uh, They've tried to wrestle with this a little bit and, and one of the presumptions, assumptions, speculations And that's really all it is Is that the person that's traveling with Cleopas Is his wife Mary now, the reason this could be the case is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. It's describing the cross of Christ. It's the scene where Jesus is dying. And it says in verse 25 of that Gospel, of chapter 19, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, it wasn't uncommon for the same person to have different spellings of the same name. And so, again, some scholars kind of wonder, like, hey, is this a husband and a wife walking back to their home of Emmaus, and they're working through all the ramifications of what's just transpired? Could be. We don't know for sure, but I think it's a fascinating idea to think about this pair maybe in this way. At the same time, it could be Cleopas and Skippy, for all I know. I don't know for sure who the other personality is or the gender of the other person but what we do know for certain is that they were followers of jesus they were witnesses to the events that had happened over the last couple of days they've heard rumors about stuff that happened earlier on this particular day and they're scratching their heads because it doesn't make a lot of sense either way that's the space they're in and so in verse 14 it says as they walked along they were talking about, literally kind of debating, kind of not arguing, but just really processing everything that had happened. And not just the rumors that were going around from that morning, but just the whole three days, the last three years, and everything else. Because from their perspective, they're thinking, all right, we really doubled down on the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. But he's now dead, and his body's now missing. And what could that mean? Because when we think about what God promised to us in the scriptures, it was a conquering Messiah who would free us from Rome and give us what we want. And we thought Jesus was the guy, but now he's dead, and now it's all gone to, to just a different genre and a different theme than we ever imagined. And so they don't know what to do with any of this information. It's not what they anticipated. And so they're working through who was this Jesus after all? And they're struggling it through. Verse 15, though, as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began to walk among them, but God kept them from recognizing him. I love this because this is the first occurrence of, like, Undercover Boss, right? If you ever watch that show where the CEO rolls in, he's like, my name's Chad. I stock shelves here, Right? So, so Jesus is like undercover boss now. They don't know that it's Jesus. They don't see any of this. Uh, but he then asks them a question. He says, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? So they stop short, 
Sadness was written across their face. This kind of shows the rumors they're hearing that morning about his body gone. They're not in a place that they think he's really risen. They're sad. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, Are you the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened over the last few days? I'm sure he's like, sorry, mate, I was busy living it. <laughs> you know, I wasn't there to listen to it. But I love what Jesus does next. He says, well, what things? He inquires, right? And, and I think this is cool because it's not like Jesus needs to get the answer. Like he's unsure of what's just transpired, right? He lived it. What he wants to hear from them is their take on what's happened. How are you processing all the events, right? As one of my followers, having heard my messages, seen these events, heard this story about this morning, in light of all of that, what is it that you're perceiving about all that has occurred up to this point? What they do with this is they give, number two in your notes, an incomplete declaration about Jesus' person. In other words, they share what they know, but what they know is certainly incomplete. Verse 19. They said, the things that happened to Jesus, a man from Nazareth, well, he was a prophet, and he did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of both God and people alike. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, we had thought, we had speculated that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. All of this happened three days ago. So some of the things they reveal is pretty clear. Jesus was a man that hung out with him. He was from Nazareth, which is impressive because not a lot of good stuff comes from there, but he was impressive. He was also a prophet. He spoke for God. He was a mighty miracle worker. And man, when he taught, it was like with authority, like nobody had heard this kind of teaching before. So they knew those things matter-of-factly. Where they're hung up is they go, and we thought he was the chosen one. We thought he was the Messiah. But three days ago when he died, all of that fell apart. Because again, for them, what did they think? The Messiah would come onto the scene, and he would divvy out wrath and judgment and war on Rome and all of Israel's oppressors, and then Israel would become the cherished nation of the world. But instead, what happened is Israel and Rome collaborated, conspired together, and they killed the one they thought that was Messiah. So all of that means, man, what we thought, dead in the water. We way misread that, right? This was not the way the story was supposed to go. Yet, there's this new additive that they've heard about that's kind of strange, and so they share it with the stranger that is now strolling along the road with them. It says, then, some of the women of our group of followers, well, they went to his tomb early in this morning, and then they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they had seen angels or messengers who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Notice they do not declare, he is risen, just as the women said. No, his body's missing. That's what they still affirm. We're not sure where, we're not sure who took it, or what's going on. Therefore, in, in this category of some doubt, some believe, some wonder, they seem to be more in the category of wondering. All we know for sure is he's missing, 
they said things, we're working it through, right? But it's this moment that sets up the third thing in your notes, a radical illumination from the Hebrew scriptures. They give Jesus this report. They don't know it's Jesus yet. And so Jesus says to them, you foolish people. And by the way, when he says this, he's not cutting them down. He's not saying you're dumb. He's like, so you followed a guy who promoted faith, and now faith is not the thing you're leaning into. Really? Is is that where you're going to be? He says, you find it so hard to believe uh, that all the prophets who wrote in the scriptures, do you find it hard what they talked about? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory concerning himself? Right? So he kind of just levels it out there. He's like, wait a minute. Haven't you guys been reading the Bible? Wasn't it clearly predicted everything that was going to transpire was going down exactly the way that we've worked through here? Now, here's where I want to prepare you. I want you to buckle up a little bit, and this is where I put on my bow tie and my tweed jacket, and I go seminary professor for a minute. When Jesus says that, wasn't it clearly predicted? You ready? The answer is no. It was not clearly predicted. By a long mile, it's not clearly predicted. When we look at the history of rabbinical teaching on the Messiah, you do not find a suffering Messiah. When you look at the body of teaching 200 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, they write heavily about the Messiah. He was never going to come, be meek, gentle, mild, and die. Never. When you look at the full body of Judaism, one of the reasons Jews to this day reject that Jesus was their Messiah is because Jesus suffered and died, and the Old Testament does not paint that picture of the Messiah. In fact, throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, um, I've used a number of tools to kind of help me do my, my studying, my research, and get ready for every week. And, and I'm going to read you a section from James Edwards' commentary on the Gospel of Luke. He's actually been a professor over at Whitworth in Spokane. He's now retired, and he's uh, writing like a madman. In fact, Jamie, who was up here, uh, it was his mentor back at Whitworth. And so I said, hey, did you know uh, James Edwards? He's like, yeah, man, his message on Luke, his class on Mark, rather, just made me want to study theology. And so, same guy. And in his commentary on Luke, he writes this. The thought of a suffering Messiah was foreign to pre-Christian Judaism, including first century Judaism. No canonical Old Testament text and no pre-Christian Jewish text that we know of associates the suffering with the Messiah. Even the pseudepigrapha, which is all of this extra Jewish writing, which develops messianic conceptions well beyond those of the Old Testament, make no mention of a suffering Messiah. There, on the contrary, we see a Messiah who will be a holy conqueror, who will consummate the end of the era of salvation, vanquish all the enemies by the word of his mouth, subject the nations to the yoke of Israel, and sit on his glorious throne, judging the earthly kings and rulers. Now it is true, there is the servant of the Lord text in the book of Isaiah, such as chapter 52 and 53, and this depicts a suffering righteous one, But the servant of the Lord is never identified as the Messiah. And Judaism never understood the servant of the Lord text to refer to the Messiah. And then he quotes another scholar who says, And none of the many works discussed here is there the slightest allusion to this idea of an exploratory or or kind of a, a suffering Messiah that would die for others. Any of that, he goes, none of that is found being connected to the Messiah. 
So when Jesus says this, we should instantly go, what you talking about, Willis? Like, honestly. If Jesus says, wasn't it so clear? And then we look, and it wasn't clear, it wasn't plain, it wasn't simple, it wasn't on the surface. Then, then what is going on here? Because honestly, at times I think we look and we go, come on, you guys, you didn't see that in the Old Testament. It was so obvious. Uh, we want to give them some, some grace and be like, apparently... It wasn't obvious. It's not been obvious. But it sets up this next point that's really important. Verse 27. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining. Right? Uh, This word is where we get the word hermeneutics, fancy word for how we interpret the Bible. He's explaining, interpreting, translating from all the scriptures things concerning himself. But this isn't some like obvious connect the dots It's like oh it was always there You were just overlooking it You weren't smart enough No he's taking them in this this, On this journey that radically Causes them to look at the Old Testament In whole new ways In fact if anything I would use the idea Of a reimagining Of the scriptures Where he's going to take them back Through all these familiar things But with a, a a focus where he is the center. He's like the lens by which you reread these things and see whole new things in light of him. That's the journey he's going to take us on, right? So we call this Christological typology. That's the fancy phrase. But it's just saying, all right, what I know and who Jesus is and what is revealed, uh, now we're going to take that and we're going to apply that to reading the Old Testament in a new way. That's kind of the idea here. Now, Believe it or not, this might shock you, but different Christians read the Bible in different ways. Radical, right? And sometimes as Christians, we can read the same Bible in different ways, right? And some ways can be reckless, some ways can be helpful, but we tend to approach the book over 2,000 years with some diversity, which is why we have Protestant and Catholic and Eastern Orthodox and Coptic, and in our own Protestant world, we have tons of denominations, right? Because we all tend to kind of look at little nuances here, and we're trying to do our best to honor God in the process of handling His Word well, because His Word is given to us for our good, for our benefit, and for our blessing. So, when they train us in seminary, they train us, hey, Here's how you want to study the Bible. I have three degrees in theology, and every one of those degrees, the primary way that they trained us is this first idea of grammatical historical hermeneutics. Again, I know we're in the weeds for a second, but here's what that means. We look at a passage like in Exodus, and we say, all right, what did Exodus mean when Moses wrote it back then for those people? We're going to look at the grammar that is used for the Hebrew. We're going to look at the context and history that was there. And we're going to find the meaning of Exodus in that setting for that time between that writer and that audience. That's, that's that idea of interpreting at this level. right? And that's the way that I was predominantly trained. There's another way, though, that sometimes we look at Scripture And this is the idea of saying, hey, it's not always the trees, but sometimes it's the forest. That we want to understand the redemptive arc of the story, how all the pieces build together to lead to Christ and what it is he reveals. And then inside of that, sometimes what we do is we say, man, how does all of it reveal Christ? Every bit of it, right? This is where Tim Keller is awesome at that. I love Tim Keller, right? Because he'll point out how Jesus is a better and truer Adam, 
and a better and truer Abraham, and a better and truer Moses, and a better and truer David and Solomon, and the list goes on, right? And all of these have a level of value. And it seems that what Jesus is engaged in here is this idea of the story arc and how he's the center of the story, right? And he wants to highlight how all the scriptures point to him. And so we have a graphic here I want to start off with right here, all right? And I want you to picture like if you were putting your Bible up before you like this. So you can see the two different sides and you can see the spine, all right? So in, in one sense, this is kind of what Scripture is. So we have the Old Testament and it's moving toward Christ to reveal cross, resurrection, ascension in the person of Jesus. And then we have the New Testament kind of coming down the other side. But both of these are pointing to Christ. In other words, Jesus is the fullest declaration of God's revealed truth to the world. I didn't say that. The writer of Hebrews says that. He says this in chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his Son. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. He sustains everything, everywhere by the mighty power of his command. In this sense, what we're realizing, what we want to own, is that when Jesus comes onto the scene, when we read about his life, his death, his resurrection, we see his messages, his words, his miracles, this is the fullest, most radical revealing of the Word of God ever. This is why when we think about the Word of God, we first should think of Jesus. When we think of the Word of God being inerrant and inspired, we should say, and when he was 12, he learned to swing a hammer, and when he was 18, he grew a beard, and like, like, that's the idea. Jesus is the fullest revelation of the word. And so what this idea is then is saying, all right, in light of Jesus being the fully revealed word, we read the rest of the word in light of him, to make much of him as we read through the scriptures. If anything, it starts to become almost like this reimagining of things. And so we want to think about, again, Jesus as the spine and subject. And what Jesus may in fact be doing in Luke 24, and as we're going to highlight in some other passages here, what's happening is, again, this idea of, all right, uh, in, in light of everything he's done, how, how do we see all these great Old Testament ideas pointing to him and highlighting him and really causing us to glory all the more in him? Now, again, I can start coming up with examples that I can make up, but that's a terrible idea. Instead, I'm going to go with the New Testament writers who did this often, who would reach into the Old Testament and grab something and bring it forward into the new in light of Jesus and, and show us something that you just wouldn't see otherwise. Now, in doing this, I, I want to be really, really open because I'm all about being open with you guys. Oftentimes, what the New Testament writers do in this context, uh, if they were to sit in an evangelical seminary class today, take a hermeneutics class, do what they do, they would get an F, all right? They would probably fail hermeneutics. Because our rule is so much, no, you got to figure out the culture and the language and the context, and there's one meaning for back then, and that's how you interpret it. But they kind of do this thing where they're like, but, but we want to showcase Jesus in everything, because he's the spine that holds all the pages together. And, and, and so they do this in a little bit of a unique sort of way. So let me start giving you some examples. There's dozens and dozens, but I'm going to give you four today because that gives you a sense of kind of an overview of how this works. So let's take the first one out of Hosea. 
you're a good Jewish kid, you're there at synagogue, you are studying the book of Hosea, and, and it's all about how Israel's been unfaithful, but God is being faithful to an unfaithful nation. He's asked this poor guy to be in an unfaithful marriage and, and highlight the love of God in the process. And in Hosea 11, God refers to this idea of remembrance. Back in the day, Israel was enslaved in Egypt, but I loved Israel. And so I called them out of their slavery, and I brought them to this new land that would be their home. And so in Hosea 11.1, 1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And I called my son out of Egypt. Right? Just good old-fashioned seminary interpretation just tells us what that is. It's a historical account. But then we get to the New Testament with the gospel writer Matthew in chapter 2. And he's talking about Jesus on the scene And Herod wants to kill Christ And so from that the family's like We've got to go to Egypt We've got to get Jesus out of harm's way And so Matthew writes about this And he says that night Joseph left for Egypt With the child and Mary, his mother And they stayed there until Herod's death This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken Through the prophet I called my son Out of Egypt Now the only prophet that gets anywhere near this Is Hosea but Hosea doesn't share it as a prophecy. He hears it, shares it as a, a piece of history. But see, by way of the Holy Spirit, leading Matthew as he writes, he's like, remember that passage in Hosea that was about Israel? Let's, let's alter it a little bit, say it's now about the Son. We'll, we'll say it's a prophecy, and we'll bring it here, and it highlights how Jesus' story was actually in the Old Testament in a concealed and unique sort of way. Now, some of us, we get troubled by that. We go, what? I think it's beautiful. Because the Holy Spirit's using this whole new lens with the writers and they're it's like man jesus is in hosea somehow buried in ways that we wouldn't have seen it's amazing it's not the only occurrence of this matthew isn't the only one to do it paul is another one who does this and he does this in a lot of different ways but one is related to uh, sarah and hagar right remember these characters out of the old testament from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 21, you see this story where God promises Abraham, I'm going to raise up a child through you, and you're going to create this whole nation with you and your wife Sarah. And they doubt, and they're like, ah, we're too old, that's not going to happen. And so they go ahead and they rope in their maidservant Hagar to have a child with Abraham, and it's this whole big mess. But eventually, there are two children, one from Hagar, that's Ishmael, and one from Sarah, that's Isaac. And and, and the whole history shows where they finally have to break off because Sarah just can't stand having the other woman around with the other kid around. It's just this whole big mess in Genesis. But that's the history of it, right? Where there's this whole weird thing. Well, Paul takes that story, and he moves into Galatians with that story in a whole new radical way. In fact, there in Galatians, he's dealing with law versus gospel. And how people would rather live under law than live under the gospel of Christ. And so he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to what the law actually says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. This may now be interpreted allegorically. These two women are now symbols of covenant. That's pretty wild Where Paul says, yeah, I know it's, it's a history lesson We understand it's a history lesson But I'm going to use it now as an allegorical lesson And he goes on to this next section here in Galatians To say one is about slavery And one is about freedom And one is about Sinai And the other is about Jerusalem And you're like, what? 
But this is how the Spirit leads Paul to take a story and deploy it differently, to reimagine how these things work. He does it in another location as well. We see it in the Exodus story. We see in the Exodus story where there is these scenes where God produces like manna, right? This special flaky stuff on the ground that you can put together is all sorts of different variations of food, right? It's pretty epic and awesome. So God provides food. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And then we see in Exodus chapter 17 that God provides water from a rock. He tells Moses, take your staff, go ahead and bonk the rock, water will flow from the rock, and I'm providing all of that. So in the history, we read the story, God provided food, God provided water, he provided water from the rock. Pretty straightforward. But Paul takes this story and reimagines it through the lens of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about the ancestors in the wilderness long ago, right? All of these were guided by a cloud that moved them ahead, that led them in the way, and they were all baptized as followers of Moses because they passed through the Red Sea and on dry ground, all of that. But then this is the redeployment. He says, and all of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they all drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. You go back and read the story, you're not thinking like, that rock is Jesus. What you're thinking is that rock has water, and it was a miracle with a staff. But Paul's like, no, I'm, let's reimagine this, right? We're seeing Christ everywhere. The same thing happens with the psalm. Paul uses this one out of, I think it's Psalm 67, or 68 rather. He talks about the scene where God comes from Mount Sinai. He comes into the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. So he ascends among the people. And from that, the people all then give these sacrificial gifts to God. Paul takes that passage, and in Ephesians 4, he flips it all around. He says, now this is reminiscent of something new. But instead of it being like, hey, we're bringing gifts to God, now it's Jesus giving gifts to us. And he takes the psalm, and he uses it in a different sort of way. Now again, in seminary, we all get in trouble. But as guided by the Spirit, these guys are all seeing the Old Testament in a whole new way through the lens of Jesus. This seems to be kind of like the Emmaus way, almost. And I believe they do this because this is what Jesus is doing here. He's taking them through all the scriptures, and he's blowing their mind, right? Saying, it's there, but it's there only in light of seeing me. It's there, but only in light of knowing my story. It's there, but only in light of of my teaching and my revelation. I love the way Martin Luther put this. The Bible is the cradle that holds Christ. Without him, it's nothing more than wood and straw. See, this, for some, may feel like, well, how do I read it now? Well, you just read it as you read it. But we want to take the Bible seriously and take it on its terms, and one of the terms it shows us is God just redeploys in beautiful ways in light of Christ. He is the full revelation of the Father. And so as this pair of individuals are moving down the road with Jesus, Jesus is moving their entire world, just completely blowing their minds. So we step back into verse 28 of chapter 24. It says, By this time they were nearing Emmaus at the end of their journey— And Jesus acted as though he was going to keep moving on. But then they begged him, and they said, Stay the night with us because it's getting late. So he went home with them. Now, this is where it gets cool to me. Because 
Luke will now do something very similar to what we were just talking about with this particular scene. And so Jesus is with this pair. They enter a home. They wash up as you normally would for the meal. And then here's what happens next. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. And then suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You're not Chad, the stock guy. You're Jesus, the CEO. They saw who it was. But did you catch what else is happening there? Some of you may say, yeah, that's a link to communion. Yeah, it is. There is a link to communion. Others will say, well, yeah, and they finally are the first persons in Luke's gospel to see the risen Christ and know it's Jesus. I go, yeah, that's true too. But there's another link that we could overlook unless we overlap. And it's number four in your notes. The first recipients of Eden restored. The first recipients of Eden restored. Right? So remember in Eden, they lost freedom, union, and fellowship at that first meal? Well, now in Christ, there is this new meal. This is a post-resurrection meal where freedom and union and fellowship is restored. Notice the parallels between Genesis 3 and Luke 24. She took. He took. She gave. He gave. At that moment, the eyes were opened. Suddenly, the eyes were opened. But the difference is one led to shame and the other they recognized him revelation insight renewal restoration right last time when their eyes were opened everything fell apart when their eyes were opened they were estranged from god but now god hands them as was always intended. Not they take themselves, but God takes and gives to them. And he gives to them, and then suddenly, just like in Eden, their eyes are opened, but it's no longer shame. Instead, it's celebration. It's serendipitous. It's surprise. Their sorrow becomes joy. Their burden becomes a burning inside of them. Their confusion becomes communion. Their wondering what's been going on the last couple of days becomes worship. And it's at that very moment that he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures, gave a whole new understanding of everything God was doing and showed us the restoring plan in the Christ-centered nature of it all. See, I love this because he vanished from their sight, but not from their soul. He vanished from them, but it was not he was banishing them like an Eden. He vanishes but because they've been drawn near to him. And so with this, Eden's curse is lifted. The full revelation of God is on display. The project that began in Eden is back on the rails with this, this pair, this new pair. So different than the pair we started with in the book of Genesis. Verse 33 it says, and within the hour, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered with them, who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. So I love this because Luke does not tell us that part of the story. He leaves that to somebody else. And in John, we find that he appeared to Mary even before he appeared to Peter. And Luke doesn't get into that. I love the fact that Luke is making a link between this and Genesis. There was a pair that lost it, and Jesus restored it to another pair. So beautiful, so elegant, so, so unexpected. 
It's Eden's restoration and the resurrection of Christ. So then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they walked along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. The last time Jesus broke bread, he said, this is a symbol of my body given for you. Now he's breaking bread with them and it is the proof of his body risen for them. It's such a wonderful, elegant conclusion. And all of this because God loves you, God seeks you, God is reclaiming you. Right now, I want us to all just take a moment to where we're at, just close our eyes, bow our heads, create that space that's just you and God, and reflect on this, like I said, somewhat academic, somewhat mysterious at times bewildering, bewildering but, but ultimately beautiful story. This whole giant story of paradise lost in Eden, paradise restored in Jesus, and Jesus always being in the fabric of all of it, undercover, mysteriously, unbeknownst to us, unanticipated, scandalously different than what was assumed. But he does it all in willing love, grace, and sacrifice for us. If you're with us this morning, watching online or in the room, and you, you don't follow Jesus, you are not somebody that has really seen yourself as a Christian, but you sense that that's the draw you are feeling today. That like with these two on the road, where their hearts were burning in them, if you sense that burning in your heart of like, man, I want to follow Jesus, that's a prayer way for you, where you say, Jesus, I thank you that you came that you died for my sin, my offense, my failure, and you rose again to give me life. I want life with you. If you pray that with your words and your way, that is the, 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 the way into the door. That's how we begin that process of being a follower of Jesus. And maybe for some of us, we, we just haven't been living in the power of the resurrection, and we just need to take today to get right and say, Jesus, help me to, to get my head screwed on straight, my heart in alignment with you, to do what you want me to do and to do it faithfully and joyfully because that is what you offer. You pray that in your way. Man, he is he's eager to respond. Jesus, we thank you for your incredible faithfulness. We thank you for the fact that when we take your word seriously, it can be challenging. It can be messy. We can go, wow, uh, reading through the lens of Christ can, can illuminate but can at the same time be perplexing and and yet I thank you that your spirit led your writers to put together such an elegant, such a baffling, but such a beautiful story where the parts that are most clear are probably the parts that are most convicting. That you are God. You gave yourself for us so that we can live life with you. You solved the problem that we invited. I pray that we will lean on you for everything. We thank you, Jesus, and we praise you in your good name. Amen.